MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 123 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Lots of news this week, including a new date and a new committee for John Durham's testimony. And a football coach turned senator is holding up the promotion of hundreds of high-level military personnel, including the new nomination for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. And by the way, also, Steve Bannon finally has a trial date set in New York for his We Build the Wall fraud scheme. And we have some Oath Keepers sentences. And Pete Navarro is still being Pete Navarro. (laughs) But first, we have some new patrons to thank. Thank you so much, patrons. You make this show happen. So thanks to Richard Nowlin, Julianne Cooper, Paul Morell, Dr. David, Cheryl Lindstrom, Steve Caro, Sue Denemy, uh, Gayongi Molnar, Valerie Pratt-Stevens, Sophia Hosman, Jen Reynolds, Chris Whitley, Brent. They're getting their comeuppance, and I'm loving it. Dia Black, Deborah Rose, Deborah Stricken, Hallie Ashman, Ellen Yee, George Budd, Greg, Robin Eddington, Rob Fillmore, Lily. Karen Desjardin or Desjardin, and uh, Andreas, Sherry Ward, or Andreas, perhaps, Sherry Ward. What if pay Trump to not commit treason? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Pat Collins, Carol Boquist, Lisa Anderson, and Lisa Marvel. Thank you so much. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. We really appreciate you if you want to become a patron. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. All right. So, Pete, we uh, I actually, I think it was me. I broke the news last week that Durham just didn't show up or wouldn't show up or canceled or somebody canceled his testimony to Jim Jordan's weaponization committee. Uh, but now things have changed and they've rescheduled and shuffled some things around. What's going on? Well, so it's weird because I heard the same thing. There was a lot of like movement about, you know, whether or not with that testimony, you know, getting people lined up to go on networks to talk about it. And then suddenly there was a, you know, rumbling that night that you heard too, that all of a sudden it was rescheduled. So I'm not sure what happened, but it was sudden. I know the media, like major networks, were not expecting it until the evening before. So something clearly happened, which caused the postponement. So as it stands now, he is going up to the uh, House side. First, it appears on June 20th, where he will appear before the House Intelligence Committee for closed testimony on June 20th. 
And then the day after that, on June 21st, it appears that he's going to be going in front of the House Judiciary Committee, where he'll be in public testimony and uh, talk about uh, to both committees about his uh, work on the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation. So, you know, there's a lot, you know, kind of a lot of interesting aspects to that. Some is, you know, one, presumably there was, and a lot of people haven't noticed this, in his cover letter that he transmitted it, his report to the attorney general, there's the mention of a classified appendix, which he says, hey, there's information in here. If you want to make it public or release it to Congress, you may need to, or you probably need to get some clearances potentially from the FISA court because there's FISA information. There's some scuttlebutt. And I remember Marcy Wheeler in particular was questioning whether or not that after the Inspector General's review of the various Carter Page FISA renewals, you know, there was an initiation and then three different renewals. There's a determination that the second and third, the last two renewals, um, were not supported by probable cause. And that as a result, the FISA court directed that that material be sequestered and sealed. And there was some question about whether or not that Durham had looked at it anyway and whether or not he had gotten the clearance he needed from the FISA court to review it and some indication potentially that he had not accessed it properly and had to turn it back in. So in any event, I suspect certainly what makes up this classified appendix is some discussion about the Carter Page FISA. Again, this was discussed at length. I mean, the Inspector General Horowitz went up, down, left, right, went through that entire process with a fine-tooth comb, found several things which led to FBI changes and procedures. I don't think at all John Durham has come up with anything new in that regard. Um, and what will be interesting to see, because this is all classified testimony, is what and how much leaks. I mean, I have no doubt that congressmen of uh, and women from both the Republicans and Democrats will come out of that session and try and spin what they heard. Um, you know, they, they should hopefully be responsible and not uh, provide classified details. But in any event, that in some ways will sort of frame the discussion for his testimony uh, the next day. And certainly things I'll be looking at there are you know, who, the amount of preparation that has gone into the questions, I am sure on the, you know, Jim Jordan and the Republican side, they'll be the standard, you know, this is a deep state coup attempt and a bunch of nonsense to try and cater to Trump. But there is the opportunity for Democrats to ask him some really um, substantive questions that he either hedged on or weaseled about in his report and, you know, pin him down on things like, you know, you Agree or disagree, the case should have been open. A case should have been open because he says that, in fact, yeah, he thinks it was appropriate to have opened a case. Not that you'd believe that listening from Fox <laughs> to Fox News or even CNN and Jake Tapper, for fuck's sake. There, there is a chance and, and there's some real solid Democrats and sharp Republicans, too. But, you know, it'll be a, a interesting to hear what he has to say on the 21st. Yeah, I'm I'm interested as well. And yeah, I remember that. that there was a, some public reporting that the courts had told Durham that he couldn't get at this information and he went around the court and got it anyway and then kind of got in trouble for that and had to give it back. I don't know if that's something that would be in that classified uh, appendix. I also have to wonder if what he investigated or didn't investigate Donald Trump for was sure. is in that uh, as well, uh, though I have to assume that because he's only going to be answering questions about his public, the public parts of his report, that if the Democrats ask about that Trump crime that they found in Italy, that he will say, I'm unable to answer those questions. He won't answer those questions. Um, another th interesting thing is that 
You know, I remember when we were trying to get at what was behind the redactions in the Mueller report, especially in volume one, because volume two, the obstruction part was largely unredacted. Uh, Although we did have that secret OLC Bill Barr memo he whipped up in a couple of hours right after he got the report that was he tried to withhold, but we eventually got most of as well. But I remember uh, folks suing for the to to lift some of the redactions in in volume one. And I believe it was Judge Reggie Walton who who ended up doing an in-camera review of the things behind those redaction bars and determined that many of them were inappropriate uh, and and were used simply to, I guess, curtail or hide the depth and breadth of Russian interference. And so those redaction bars were lifted. So I have to imagine that whatever can be declassified at some point will be declassified in this uh, report or in that appendix. I don't think there are any redactions in the public facing report. No. Um, but, I, you know, I think we will get at it. And I think, of obviously, things that need to remain classified or redacted will, uh, you know, whether it's grand jury secrecy or privacy or sources and methods or law enforcement methods or, you know, whatever is appropriate. But I think any inappropriate redactions will eventually come out. Uh, they usually do. We us- we have a very robust investigative journalist uh, group here in, in, in the United States. It's very good at getting at those things. We also have members of Congress who can try to get at those things. And we have a cooperative DOJ, you know, uh, so if, you know, if they ask for it, they may just be able to get it with the appropriate redactions put in there. Uh, So it'll be really interesting to see. But, you know, I don't I wouldn't expect I, I what I expect is a lot of spin. And I expect that we aren't going to get the real questions that we want answered answered, uh, at least uh, not during the public testimony. Uh, but I, I just kind of want everybody to like, rest assured, in, you know, a couple years, we'll probably know what <laughs> what was behind those redaction bars, if it is, in fact, inappropriately classified. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. I agree with you. I don't think there's going to, the things that I would most like to know about this alleged Trump referral from the Italians, the reasons why Nora Dennehy and, uh, you know, an assistant United States attorney out of D.C. quit the team. Those are things he's not going to answer. You're absolutely right. He's going to say, I'm here to answer what's in the report. If it's not the report, I'm not going to talk about it. You know, unfortunately, his, you know, his report is a, is a you know, 300-page editorial. So he is going to, I think, be playing to a sympathetic Republican side of the aisle that is going to ask him questions and allow him to expound and, you know, creep right up to the edge of, of, of inappropriate prosecutorial behavior by dumping all over people people that he failed to, you know, convict, let alone, or even charge. And to the extent that people on the Democrat side may ask him questions, it's going to have to, if they want to answer out of them, it's going to have to be something out of the report. So, you know, there are things there that are interesting questions. I don't, you know, some of it in addition to that Trump referral, you know, he he's chased around the the world with Bill Barr, all these, you know, George Papadopoulos's crazy theory of the case, trying to track down uh, Mifsud. And the other game, Allison, I think they might play is like, well, you know, a lot of these events occurred before I was named a special counsel, which is a little bit of a bullshit answer, right? I mean, people, I think some folks forget that he was there doing this look for a while 
before Bill Barr finally seeing that, you know, the the administration was about to flip, decided to, to appoint him a special counsel. So to the extent they're trying to hide activities under this idea that, well, he wasn't a special counsel yet, that's a little bit of bullshit. And I, you know, I would hope at some point there is some accountability somewhere. You know, what does this classified appendix have? Clearly there's a whole paragraph of reference to FISA material. So that relates to Carter Page. I fully expect, given Bill Barr's dark prophecy that the intelligence community was behind this somehow. And then he later walked that back and said, no, it doesn't look like they did anything wrong. There's probably some discussion about what other members of the intelligence community did or didn't do at the beginning of the cases. But I do worry to some extent that there might be things in there that are hidden, not because they necessarily should be classified, but because they're embarrassing. And that's where I think, you know, again, to the point of, well, did they say this Italian allegation about Trump? Well, that, you know, came from a foreign nation and therefore it's sensitive and it's classified. I, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know that I buy that. Similarly, we investigated and didn't find anything. Well, you, you investigated and didn't find anything in a lot of other places that you're talking about. <laughs> so why so why somehow is Trump off limits when you're you're busy trying to like spin and, and dump all over, you know, anybody in the FBI or elsewhere that you can possibly talk about? So, you know, we'll see. I think you're right. It may take a while. It may take FOIAs, it may take litigation, it may take you know, judicial judges themselves going through and deciding, okay, is this appropriately classified? What can be released? And, you know, we'll see it, but you're right. It's not going to be for a while. Yeah. And, and they're always about technicalities, right? Like, oh, I wasn't a special counsel at that moment, so I'm not subject to special counsel regs. Okay. I mean, but it just reminds me of like Ken Paxton, who was just impeached saying, well, the law says since the last election, and I did all these terrible crimey things before uh, when I was in office, but before the last election, or when the Republicans decided not to convict Trump in the Senate during his second impeachment trial because he wasn't president anymore. We don't we don't impeach former president. Just like uh, these, all these technical, like the crimes happened, you know, just we don't look at them or you don't need to know about them because of some weird technicality. It's antithetical to the idea of transparency. And and the weird thing, too, just before we get on to these Oath Keeper sentences, uh, is that, you know, Durham explains up front in his report, and I knew exactly what he was getting at. He was like, look, 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 if somebody was not indicted, we don't want to bring it up because we don't want to, uh, you know, you don't talk about unindicted people. It's, you know, it could wreck their credibility, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a, a DOJ rule. And I think he was trying to say that I'm not going to tell you about Trump's crime because he wasn't indicted, uh, even though he's supposed to tell us why he declined to prosecute anything that he investigated. Um, but then he went on for 300 pages to talk about all sorts of unindicted people. You know, right. so I don't understand right. the no, it's 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 the nonsense, hypocrisy. Right? I, yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, you know, and to the to the extent when he's sitting there saying, you know, some of these criticisms are well, you know, you somebody did or didn't do something against the spirit or the intent of a rule or a regulation or a law. He and he throws that around about what people should have done and maybe they should have considered this and maybe they should have considered that. And it's the entirety of a lot of this argument is, you know, it may have all been, you know, in accordance of rule and regulation, but the broader intent or the broader theory should have dictated that people did something else. Fine. If that's your argument, then lead by example. 
Let's talk about all the things that you're doing and not doing, the things that you're saying about people that you failed to convict or that you didn't bring any charges. Let's talk about the spirit behind what a prosecutor does. Let's talk about the spirit of all the investigation you did before you were named the special counsel. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, his budget, eight, nine million dollars. Well, you know, guess what? That's just what his published budget was for the time that he was special counsel. If you look at all the work that he was doing before, I mean, let's talk about the the DOJ jet that flew him and the attorney general all around the world. And let's start, you know, tallying up. It's like a Harlan Crow vacation extravaganza, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Let's fucking add that money to that $8 million. Did they million take dollars. Thomas sudden, with them? Like, you know, for vacation <laughs> Well, they maybe, you know, who knows? It's like, you know, or like, you know, figure out like, well, we're going to have to like, if this gets appealed up to the Supreme Court, we got to start you know, buttering up people right now. Yeah, my, um, I would be but, like, so how many bourbons did you have with Bill Barr? <laughs> how many times? You know, anyway, we'll see. We'll see how it goes and we'll report on it when it happens. Um, at, we actually do need to take a quick break and we're going to uh, come back, talk about some Oath Keeper sentences and, um, you know, what's going on with Tommy Tuberville. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. Welcome back. So uh, last week saw a lot of movement in terms of sentencing of a number of Oath Keepers who were convicted last November by a federal jury in Washington, D.C. for a variety of crimes related to their roles in storming the Capitol, which saw rioters battling police, smashing windows, 
and sending lawmakers, including the now uh, famous uh, Josh Hawley, running down the aisles to evacuate the Capitol. A lot of these, though, were very, very significant in terms of they are by far and away some of the most, they are the longest and most significant sentences handed down to date for anybody for their role in and around the events of January 6th. Notably, uh, starting with Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, who was sentenced to 18 years in jail which again, that's the largest sentence anybody has seen in January 6th. You know, it's a lot. Now, keep in mind, prosecutors had asked for 25. The sentencing guidelines mandated a, a baseline, a minimum range of 20 years. So, you know, I think uh, we, we talked about this during the, the bonus episode, Allison. I think we were both a little disappointed that these sentences weren't higher, but that's still a long time. And, you know, you run down the list, Kelly Meggs, another, uh, you know, senior Oath Keeper person received a sentence of 12 years. Uh, towards the end of last week, both Jessica Watkins and Kenneth Harrelson, both Army veterans. Jessica Watkins got a sentence of eight and a half years. Um, she was acquitted of seditious conspiracy, but was convicted of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Now, both of those have the same 20-year maximum. Prosecutors had asked for 18 years, and defense her attorneys had asked for five years. So, you know, that eight and a half year sentence was uh, much closer to what the defense attorneys were asking for. You know, she was, unlike Stuart Rhodes, who got up and essentially said F you to the judge and to the court, compared himself to America's Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and, you know, essentially said, yeah, hell yeah, I did it and I'd do it again. Um, Watkins was very contrite, um, you know, spent a lot of time uh, in court uh, asking for forgiveness, recognizing the, 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 wrong that she had done. You know, prosecutors pushed back a little bit and, uh, you know, talked about some recordings and things she had said while incarcerated, you know, calling, you know, police officers a bunch of triggered babies for, you know, whining about the 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 injuries they had suffered on January 6th. And then Ken Harrelson, again, only received a four-year sentence where prosecutors had asked for 15 years and his attorneys had asked for a lighter sentence. Now, there's one more person out of that group of, there were a group of five who were tried, and that's Thomas Caldwell. He has argued uh, that whether or not two charges should be vacated, and we're waiting on the court decision for that. You know, they, they had a hearing last week before Judge Mehta. They asked for a motion, or they moved that he be acquitted. Now, Meta, I think there's a ruling in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in the Robertson case hinging on the idea of what the definition is corruptly in the context of whether a defendant convicted of obstructing an official proceeding must have committed other felonious conduct to meet the statute's corruptly requirement. Now, that's still pending in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I'm sure that Judge Meta would like to have a decision from them before he decides what he does or doesn't do with Caldwell. It'll be interesting to see whether he decides to wait on that or whether he says, I, I don't know when the DC Circuit Court of Appeals is going to rule and he decides and goes ahead one way or the other. Now, last thing, there were four other Oath Keepers who were tried in a separate trial who are due to be sentenced this week. And that's Robert Menuda out of, and I'll, it's interesting where they're from because it just demonstrates the wide scope of the Oath Keeper membership. But Manute is from Prosper, Texas. Joseph Hackett from Sarasota, Florida. David Marshall from Punta Gorda, Florida. And Edward Vallejo out of Phoenix, Arizona. So the four of them should be sentenced this week. Uh, we'll see what sort of sentences they get. I don't think they're they're not facing the same sort of level of charges, certainly, that Stuart Rhodes is. But I can see them getting, you know, along the lines of what Watkins and Harrelson, you know, I can see easily four, six, 10-year sentences for each of them. But uh, we'll wait and see. Um, by the time we're, you know, we're all listening to this, some of them will likely have already been sentenced. 
Yeah. And another significant point is that these are the first times that a terror enhancement has been applied. Uh, the DOJ, before the Oath Keepers, had asked, uh, I think, four times, uh, four different times for a terror enhancement for, for previous January 6th rioters. And all four times, the judges denied the terror enhancement. One of those judges have was was Amit Mehta, who, who did the sentencing this time. But this time, Amit Mehta accepted the terror enhancement, uh, and uh, that increased uh, the, the, the sentencing considerations. Now, I still haven't seen the full sentencing order. I don't know what the 18 years is for. I don't know if it was for, like, Stuart Rhodes. I don't know if it was 18 for seditious conspiracy, 18 for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And, you know, I don't know whether they're consecutive, concurrent, um, because I know that DOJ was asking for consecutive sentences. But because the max penalty for any one felony wasn't reached, it kind of moots the idea of serving uh, your sentences consecutively. But uh, once we have that detailed information, uh, I'll share it with you. And uh, of course, we'll be covering uh, what happens to the rest of the Oath Keepers. And coming soon, sentencing recommendations for the Proud Boys. Those aren't going to be uh, good either. But it is of note that Stuart Rhodes wasn't there at the Capitol that day and was still hit with seditious conspiracy charges. So it has been shown you can be convicted and sentenced and have a terror enhancement for seditious conspiracy even if you weren't there that day. And that could portend very badly for someone like Enrique Tarrio uh, and perhaps even Donald Trump. We don't know what Jack Smith has. We don't know what kind of evidence he has. But, there, you know, it has to be by force. Uh, but, we, you know, we'll know soon enough. So um, next, uh, Pete, I, I wanted to kind of shift gears because there is something going on and it's been going on for weeks now with the promotion of now I think it's about 230 flag officers and now it includes C.Q. Brown, who has been nominated by Biden to serve as the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff once General Milley is done with his term as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Now, Senator Tommy Tuberville has put a hold, sort of, on these promotions. He's, he's gumming up the works on these promotions because he doesn't like something that uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin did. He's using a procedural tactic to plug up the speedy confirmation of military officials, which will apl apply to CQ Brown as well, because the hold applies to all one-star nominations and above. Um, and technically speaking, he can't block the Senate from processing any promotion, but it can dramatically slow down the process that's typically done without a vote at all. Um, but, you know, basically, there is a policy enacted I believe it was May, June, July, August, last October uh, by the Pentagon that pays for and grants leave for folks who need reproductive health care that are in states, stationed in states where abortion is illegal. And I actually wrote in May of 2022, I wrote an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post because when, when the Do this is right after the Dobbs decision leaked, but it was before it came down. To, you know, before we got the actual ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. And my very first thought went back to when I was stationed in Florida in 1995 and experienced military sexual trauma and had to seek abortion care. I was able to just walk right out the gates and go to a Planned Parenthood and get that care because abortion wasn't banned in 1995 in Florida. But I immediately thought of anybody who's stationed in a state now where abortion bans were triggered or new abortion laws have been put into effect uh, curtailing or banning outright abortions, even in the case of rape and incest. Uh, I thought about uh, people who who 
may have suffered the same fate who wouldn't be able to get an abortion, how hard it is to get leave from the military. Anybody who's been in the military knows you got to put in a leave chit. It has to go up the chain of command, usually uh, sometimes even up to the commander. You have to put why you want to go on leave, how long you go want to go on leave. Um, and some commands don't even let uh, allow leave unless you've had a death in the family or something like that. And uh, that's where my thought first went was to to those folks. And and so I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post saying immediately the Pentagon has to grant all leave, no questions asked for, for uh, travel for abortion care. And a few months later, bam, the policy changed. And now leave is granted and paid for. Now, Tuberville says that he will not allow these military promotions until that rule is overturned. And he is saying it violates the Hyde Amendment, which it does not. The Hyde Amendment prevents federal dollars from being spent on abortion. This is federal dollars being spent on travel. Uh, and then he says, well, what about the leave? Well, everybody in the military is gets paid leave. That's <laughs> You're in the military 24-7. You, you don't like put in for sick days. It's It's not how it works. You're just in the military and you get your monthly salary for whatever rank you are. Uh, and so this is personal to me because he's he's hold, now he's threatening national security by holding up these promotions and and he's doing it to overturn a rule that helps national security. Uh, and so it's 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 mind boggling. It's infuriating, especially since the Senate wouldn't pass the Military Justice Improvement Act, which is what took the decision to prosecute rapes out of the chain of command, the same chain of command that often includes your attacker. So it's just, it's extremely frustrating. Uh, and we have some quotes here. Uh, As we face persistent threats to our national security all over the world, we need our military nominees and certainly our next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to be confirmed quickly. Senators shouldn't play politics with our military, its readiness, or our military families. Um, Mitch McConnell even said, no, I don't support putting a hold on military nominations. I don't support that. Um, Tuberville said he will keep the hold on the promotions until the policy has changed. He's holding fast. Um, and it's, it's a disgrace and it's dangerous. Yeah, it really is. I mean, one, it's a, it's, it's a horrible reason and, uh, just a pathetic reason to have put a hold in the first place. But, you know, the, the impact is we're, we're talking about the senior leadership of the military, like all of it, the army, Navy, air force, Marines, their leadership from the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, all the way down to any general, uh, to block that when Russia and Ukraine are at war, when China is continuing to, you know, build their strategic and military presence in, you know, throughout Asia, this is not the time that we need some jackass who, you know, is better suited walking up and down the sideline of some football game and to trying to play politics. And, you know, it's not, the, the White House does have some leverage here. I mean, you know, you look back at Senator Shelby, uh, who a former now, you know, retired senator um, from Alabama was very good at making sure that federal money made its way down to Alabama, particularly in and around Huntsville. Uh, You have a tremendous number of DOD facilities there, major commands that are there. You have a lot like the FBI is a big facility. There are a lot of other federal entities that are down there. And at the end of the day, you know, the, if you look at the net flow in and out of the coffers of the United States and in and out of the coffers of the state of Alabama, Alabama gets a lot more money from the federal government than the federal government gets from the, you know, Alabama business and taxpayers. So, you know, one option would be, you know, there's some discussion about where uh, the new space command would be housed, and there was some kind of shenanigans at the end of the Trump administration that DOD preferred to keep it in Colorado. 
uh, around the Colorado Springs area, I think, and that that was sort of mysteriously shifted down to Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. There's And there's some question where Biden may or may not be looking to move that back to Colorado from Alabama. But look, at the end of the day, it would, you know, there are ways that the, you know, the executive branch and OMB and DOD could say, look, you're not getting money for another tray in the mess hall at any of these facilities in Alabama until you, you know, come off the stupid position that you've got. If you want to posture, if you want to make statements about your views on, you know, backwards views, in my opinion, about, you know, right to women's health care, do it, but don't do that at the expense of our military, which is exactly what he's doing right now. So, you know, Biden in particular, having spent as long a time as he did in the Senate, I think understands, you know, what power he does and doesn't have. And I hope he exercises it because, you know, what Tuberville is doing is just, you know, reprehensible and irresponsible, is putting American uh, soldiers and airmen and, you know, sailors at risk. And it's just indefensible. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And um, by the way, if you want to uh, Google Tommy Tuberville's office phone number and uh, leave him a message, tell him to let the promotions go through because he is stupid. Okay, um, we will be right back. We have more news to get to, including uh, st- information about Steve Bannon. Uh, and then a little bit later, we'll talk about what Pete Navarro is up to. Again, still just being Pete Navarro. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. 
Welcome back. Uh, before we get into uh, Steve Bannon, which I know you're really excited to talk about, Steve, uh, I just wanted to thank some of our Hall of Fame sponsors, Dr. David, Karen Sherman. Think of the Ocha Nostra as the singing octet. <laughs> Cindy McNary, Tiffany Trump was adopted. Okay. Caroline Komen, Suzanne Ashworth, punk rock liberal, backdropbooks.com, another um, Minneapolitan, awesome. Sloan Russell, uh, Kirkland, J. Bateman, I'm fast at sex. Uh, I no longer uh, in a shout out mood. I am no longer in a shout out mood. I'm a trash bag from Arizona. Please don't read this on the pod. We need we don't need a call out. Thank, oops, too late. Dude, <laughs> January 20, baby, a dinosaur dental school. Insert witty name here. David in Brooklyn, Lance Buckley, Greg Kreimer, and our absolute legends, Scott Grigas, Mitchell, Chris Simpson, and Charles Jones. Thanks again for being patrons. Just, Amazing. I know. I love everybody so much. All right. Now, from Adam Klasfeld at Law and Crime, good friend Adam, former Donald Trump strategist Steve Bannon will stand trial next year for defrauding donors, allegedly, of a charity initiated to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Bannon and his former company, We Build the Wall, have been under indictment in New York since February of last year. It's been over a year. The six-count indictment accuses Bannon of money laundering, conspiracy, schemes to defraud. He has pled not guilty. Apparently, the delay, he was supposed to go to trial this November. Apparently, the delay is because he's not paying his lawyer, and his lawyer <laughs> doesn't like him anymore. Um, the charges mirror broadly those brought by federal prosecutors against Bannon, and his co-conspirators, Brian Colfage, Andrew Botolato, and Tim Shea. Trump pardoned Bannon, though, but not the other guys. And now Colfage and Botolato copped to plea deals, but Shea opted to stand trial, which ended in a guilty verdict on a second try. Colfage is going to get a four-year sentence. Botolato um, will get three years, and Shea will be sentenced in June. Uh, Alvin Bragg, as the you know Manhattan DA, he indicted Bannon of similar crimes. Under the uh, separate sovereigns doctrine, which holds that double jeopardy does not apply in cases of separate jurisdictions. Uh, Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Juan Merchan, who is presiding, by the way, over Bannon's criminal case and Trump's, uh, again, like I said, previously wanted to do this in November. Um, so that's what's happening. May of next year, Bannon goes to trial and he faces some pretty significant time uh, for this, Pete. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think, you know, both certainly for Trump, he's playing a delay game, right? Anything he can do to just kick it down the line, I don't think there's any great, you know, stratagem that he's playing at here. He just wants to delay it and postpone it. And hopefully something comes up or something happens where it doesn't matter. But what you're getting, in effect, is all of these trials are all getting pushed into next year, which means at the height of the election season, both for the primaries and then going into the general election, you're going to have finally all these trials coming up and you're going to have Bannon. You know, again, we don't know what's going to happen, but if you look at the the record, conviction record of his co-conspirators, all of whom have been found guilty, I think there's a reasonable expectation that, you know, there's a decent chance Steve Bannon's going to go to jail and he's going to go to jail in the middle of a general election. So yeah, his is in March. Right. And so right, basically, I think Judge Merchan is like, OK, we should be done with Trump around May. You come in in May, Bannon. And it's just going to be bam, bam, bam. And that's nothing to say of whenever Fonnie Willis's trial gets scheduled right. or when uh, DOJ for any of the different, you know, investigations into Trump or the DOJ uh, come up. I assume all those trials will happen next year as well. And Trump has already tried to play games by pointing to the other trials and other activities 
to say, oh, I can't do this on this date with you because I have this other obligation with this judge. And two of the judges up in, you know, and I think it was Marchand was one of them. And it was Robbie found, Ka- and Robbie Kaplan, who wasn't and one of Robbie the Kaplan, people. Like pointing, <laughs> saying, hey, Your Honor, by the way, he's You're telling both sides that he can't do something, pointing the finger at the other side. And of course, that didn't impress the court, obviously. But, you know, there there is, you know, I think a real issue that is going to come up that if you look at when you do add Fonnie Willis, which, you know, I'm betting with you that she is going to indict Trump. And I think there's a decent chance that Jack Smith does as well. He is going to be facing multiple criminal proceedings all going on at the same time. So it's going to get interesting logistically because I think this is not, he's playing games now, but if you're facing New York plus federal charges plus Georgia all in the beginning of 2024, there there is a real you know potential claim of a conflict there. So, which of course he's going to play up as much as he can, but, you know, folks buckle in, you know, you think we're looking at a lot of stuff right now, keeping track of the ins and outs of what's going to be going on in about eight, 10 months time is going to be something to behold. Yeah. And looking at the trial schedule uh, for Georgia, I personally, and this is just, I'm just speculating here. I don't think his trial for Georgia, if you know, and I do believe he'll be indicted in Georgia, isn't going to happen probably until after the election. Uh, because, you know, she announces in August, and I, I think there's at least a year to to 15 months uh, of a delay um, in that particular docket. So, well, you know, again, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, just to point out, please vote. But if he is elected president <laughs> somehow in, uh, in 2024, that doesn't stop Fonnie Willis from taking him to trial after the election. Uh, although he may file some sort of uh, article, you know, constitutional thing where he can't be president and go on trial at the same time. And this Supreme Court might actually grant him that delay. So we'll see what we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, that's 2024 is going to be very, very interesting. All right. We have to take another break and then we'll come back and tell you all about what Pete Navarro is doing. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. 
This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Pete Navarro has filed an update in the case where DOJ sued to get his presidential records from his ProtonMail account back when he was a COVID advisor to the former president. You know, up till now, Navarro has resisted handing over the documents, claiming that it would violate his Fifth Amendment rights. Now, yeah, every said, one of these he said arguments. He if said, if I hand over the documents, you'll know I broke the Presidential Records Act law, and that would be incriminating to me. So I shouldn't have to hand these over. That was his literal argument. Yeah, and he's every one of those arguments he's lost and been told, look, you have to turn everything over. And of course, he's been stalling for what seems now the better part of a year or more. I don't think it's been quite that long, but there's yet another filing and saying, hey, look, you know, Dr. Navarro submits the following in support of his submission that he has complied with the court's enforcement order. And it gets really, I mean, talk about like when you you come across legalese and immediately the hair on the back of your neck sort of stands up saying, okay, this is worded in a way that they're playing games. Yes. There are phrases and things that are said here that make me immediately think there are shenanigans afoot. And so it starts the, you know, we got a, a bunch of quotes here. Undersigned counsel notes that they searched for and identified, quote, all presidential records generated across any and all of Dr. Navarro's personal accounts on which Dr. Navarro transacted official business. It goes on to note in the sad sack sort of way that Dr. Navarro's Proton Mail account was processed and loaded into Relativity, which is a cloud-based e-discovery software that permits advanced searching of metadata and other electronic data. But lo and behold, it's so expensive, Your Honor, and to affect these searches and all the subsequent production of records that Dr. Navarro incurred tens of thousands of dollars in expenses. Now, I, Allison, I look. It is not. I cannot envision a scenario easily where if I had potential presidential records, there were on multiple, it appears, or at least one Potana mail account, I could not just go through in an afternoon, pull up every email, hit fucking print, each and every time there might be something that was a potential record, hand that over to my attorney and say, look, go through, or better yet, give my attorney my password and say, you go through it and decide. Are there truly, is it truly that complex a scenario? And I think he's already said there are less than a couple hundred emails. But what on earth is so complex in this process that he needs to have incurred tens of thousands of dollars in relativity charges to turn over these uh, records? Well, this now, was this Rudy's argument to... too in the Shea Moss well, Ruby Freeman thing. And, 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 and he's like, look, I'm broke. I can't afford to go through all these and turn over documents as part of discovery. And Beryl Howell called him out on his shit. She's like, really? Okay, prove to me that you're broke, that you can't afford the costs of discovery. Just prove it. And so that's where we are with that. But this is very common uh, uh, over on their side. Yeah. And, and this is where it starts getting really like where, where the bullshit creeps in, right? <laughs> it says, with respect to the quote, four non-official email accounts used to conduct official business during his government tenure, Navarro arguments and notes that the government has yet to identify the accounts to which it refers. 
And then it further states, Dr. Navarro identified no emails that were not also contained within and thus produced from Dr. Navarro's Proton mail account or Dr. Navarro's official White House email account. So you've got you've got two things there, which just immediately. So he knows what the accounts are, but doesn't. Well, Is that what he's saying? Well, he's he, he's like he's like, well, government, you haven't identified him. It's like, well, oh, OK, but does that mean you don't know what those four accounts are? Or are you just yes, you can note that all you want. But you're, what you're not noting is that you don't know what the government's talking about. You're saying, oh, government, you haven't specified these. You're not saying, government, I don't know what you're talking about. You're saying, oh, government, you haven't identified these. Well, and, and then he goes on, he goes, you haven't specified those accounts, but I looked at them and I couldn't find any that weren't in the Proton Mail. Like, he, 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 he acknowledges that there are other accounts. It's just the most ridiculous, weird, hair on the back of the neck verbiage to, to it just seems like lies. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, there is clearly jackassery afoot, right? I mean, there's clearly something that is going on there. It is a very easy, you know, this is the court in March 9th, they ordered this, like, do turn this over right now. It is not a hard ask to say, you know what presidential records are. It's any email you have where you're conducting government business, go through your shit and turn it over. That's not a complicated ask. Peter Peter Navarro is not Jeff Bezos, who has, you know, tens of thousands of subordinates communicating in every way, shape, or form internally with attorneys. It's Peter fucking Navarro. It's not hard. It's not complicated. No. Just do it. And now he's putting the onus on the government. Did you read those last couple of lines? He's like saying, he, he goes, he goes, listen, he goes, Hey, if the government or the court is aware of any additional presidential records that Dr. Navarro has failed to produce or any searches that Dr. Navarro could conduct to identify such records, Dr. Navarro, through counsel, will will do it, will conduct it. So now he's putting the onus on the government. Instead of saying, I've turned over everything and I've done a search and I attest to that to this court of law under penalty of perjury, what he's saying is, well, I, I don't even know what you want, really. And, and if you know of anything, you just let me know and I'll give it to you. It, it's absurd. There is no other defendant who could get away with this sort of bullshit. There isn't. You have a subpoena. You get a subpoena from the government. Provide records X, Y, and Z. Go search your stuff for records X, Y, and Z. And the fact that he has been in litigation well prior to March 9th, ending in the court, essentially losing patience and saying, turn it over. Is, Allison, this isn't hard. No. He's not a captain of industry with 40 <laughs> email accounts on 17 different burner phones. It's go. I mean, just pull up any clip you want of Peter Navarro spouting off this isn't a complicated task. This is a task given via subpoena to thousands upon thousands of individuals across the United States every single month. Mm -hmm. This is not building a fucking lunar lander. This is go look through your stuff and turn over records, which might be presidential records. It's not hard. No, it's not. And it's also of note that DOJ didn't charge him with violating the Presidential Records Act. They just sued him to get this stuff back. This is... I think the government now bending over backwards for the 99th time. Uh, and what I'm wondering, what I'm beginning to wonder is if he if he fails to turn things over or if the government does know that he has something or they find that he has something, they have his phone. They have his stuff. 
then maybe the charges come. Uh, I mean, because I was thinking like, well, could they hold him in contempt? I'm like, well, just fucking indict him for violating the Presidential Records Act. If he, if he has these things, I mean, you know, they'll have to prove that he knowingly has them. Um, but um, they didn't indict him. They just sued to get the stuff back. It's kind of like when they, you know, didn't when, you know, they took over the Mueller investigation, they hadn't indicted Manafort for violating the FARA. They just said, hey, could you mind, do you mind registering? And then when the Mueller team got it, they were like, what the fuck? You just <laughs> don't give me, don't give me, I don't, I don't. There, there are points of aggravation about things that didn't, didn't happen. And yeah. that was one of those things that get me all riled up. Yeah, I, this yeah. is, this is the, this is supposed to be the PG-13 version, Allison. We only, we do the blue news on the bonus episode, but I'm afraid that, you know. Oops. My, my, some swearing has crept in. <laughs> well, but yes, Matt, Mattaford's fair registration was, was certainly something. Yeah. I talked to, when I talked to Weissman about it, head of team Manafort, right? Yeah. He was a little, uh, surprised <laughs> to learn that. He's like, why are you telling him everything he has to do? Why are you, it was, uh, it was pretty bizarre. And then of course they stood up the Farrah unit and put Van Grack in charge of it at first. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting response. But still, nonetheless, uh, here we are. We'll see what happens. Uh, this is the latest filing we have in this case. I haven't heard, We haven't heard back from the judge yet or the DOJ uh, in a reply. Uh, we'll see what happens. But again, this is pursuant to a lawsuit, not even a subpoena or an indictment. Um, so it's, uh, frankly, it's mind-boggling um, that he's still getting away with this all this time later, just holding on to these presidential records. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Again, thanks to our patrons and thanks to everybody else for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, and oh, this week is going to be interesting. Uh, we could be days away from uh, from some DOJ indictments in the documents case. Uh, whether that goes all the way up to Trump or not, don't know. Uh, but everybody keep in mind, Things can change at a moment's notice. We saw it with Fonnie Willis. Pete, you and I talked about it. She was ready to hand down her imminent charging decisions when all of a sudden she found out that she has eight new cooperating witnesses because they weren't offered immunity by their lawyers like they yep. were supposed to be. And that put things off by quite a few months. If all of a sudden Walt Nada comes to his sentences, his senses and decides he wants to start cooperating with the government and we have another cooperating witness... You could see another delay here, but they haven't been in session since May 5th um, for that particular case at the at the grand jury. And um, there have been several reports that it could be that Memorial Day was a target target date for charging decisions could come within days to weeks of now. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but we are now on pretty high alert indictment watch. Yeah, for sure. And I'm really curious to see like the overlap. There's some people that overlap, right? Some of the attorneys, certainly Christina Bob, you know, signed the certification after she edited it, but she was also in the war room with Eastman and Rudy and everybody else. So there are people who have in the Trump camp who have their feet in both the Mar-a-Lago classified document, potential criminal exposure, as well as in the broader January 6th thing. So I think some of that- Boris Epstein. You know, right. Epstein is all over it, you know, presumably Meadows, you know, I don't know how much he was involved in, you know, moving or knowing about classified information down there. But there there are folks that I think are going to be, you know, very interesting because of the roles they play in both episodes. But you're right. We're soon. We got to do, we, we talked about a pool, like a Super Bowl, like what's the halftime score? What's the, what's the final <laughs> score? It's kind of like uh, back. You mentioned Minneapolis, like I was like went to high school in Minnesota and like like way up north outside of St. Cloud, but they would always like, before it became horribly ecologically just terrible, would take some old when the lakes 
you know, they're in the land of a thousand lakes, right? In a lake, when it froze over, drive out some dilapidated old car, and then people would take bets or place bets on the date in the spring where the ice would melt enough that the car would break through the ice and sink to the bottom of the lake. So similar sort of thing. We could come up with a pool oh. for, for when the Like the head dropped. of lettuce versus the... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Versus... Uh, Maybe we should do a head of lettuce. Uh, will it outlast <laughs> the, the, the federal grand jury for the documents case? We could, yeah, we could set something up like that. Do a live cam. Do you got a webcam? We could figure something out. Um, anyway, super fun. Uh, but yeah, no polluting the lakes. Let's not do that. Yeah, there's simpler times. Simpler times when, uh, you know. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Um, yeah, in San Diego, we don't really, we're like, what? Um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, because I, you know, I grew up in Cleveland and, and there's a lot of bowling and a lot of football. I went back to a couple of Browns games and I was like, man, they are really into football here. And, you know, my cousin Jimmy's like, yeah, that's really all we got. Um, so. <laughs> so. <laughs> look, frozen lake, car, going out there every day to see what's going on. Yeah, look, it's, it's you, you find entertainment where you can get it. I you guess. do. All right, everybody, we'll be, uh, we'll be back next week. Um, and who knows what will happen between now and then. But thanks again for listening. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, 
If I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.